0: Hey Denver, it's Bree. I've got something special for you this weekend. It's an episode of a new podcast called Elevated Denver that's diving deep into Denver's housing crisis. Over the course of 10 episodes, they're reflecting on how homelessness is affecting our community, particularly those who are experiencing or have experienced being unhoused. They also talk about how we got here and what it will take to move forward. Today, I'm delighted to share episode two of the Elevated Denver podcast. Please enjoy.
1: Can you see if those green lights are moving down here? Yeah. Check one two, checking I see one green two. Lights moving. Okay, then I think we are in pretty good shape here. So where are we, Jonna?
0: We are at the Renaissance West End Flats, which are owned by the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. And we're about to meet with Myra, who has um, generously offered her time to talk to us about her experience. And this building is located basically on the corner of Colfax and Sheridan which are two very busy boulevards, cross-cutting Denver. And we're about to go into Myra's apartment.
1: All right, so we're gonna go knock on the door now and, and meet Myra. Hi, Myra. Think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be.
0: All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent.
1: Multiple pathways for a common purpose. We're looking at a human being and there's life story. 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 Story.
2: Hey, this is what's going on.
1: An Elevated Denver starts now. As we said at the end of the last episode, To really understand the complexity of homelessness, we need to get to know some of our neighbors who have lived experience. Myra is one of them, and her story offers us a window into the journey into homelessness and out of it again. But it's just one story. And while many of the themes you're about to hear are shared by many of our neighbors, every life and every life story is unique. This is Myra's story, and I should say that Some of what she shares in this episode may be triggering, but understanding Myra's journey creates an important foundation for the work to cultivate an elevated Denver. So with that context and with no further ado, here's Myra.
2: I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. My dad was the breadwinner. He worked two jobs and he did Junking, that's what he called it, on the weekends with his truck, and he would make barbecue pits, welding. He really took care of us, so I was able to live a better life. There was an empty lot with a little shack across the street that kept catching fire. At the time, I didn't know it was drug-related. There was people across the street also that would have fights with butcher knives. The neighbor next to us, The mother, she ended up shooting the father, dead body thrown on the back of our fence. So I had trauma when I was young, you know, I just didn't know that that was trauma. As I started to grow up, I started venturing out, I went to Job Corps, learned some skills there, got married, had a couple kids, divorced and married again to the same person. Since then I got married to a guy I met in California and we moved out here to Colorado. We started separating because we shouldn't have been together he wasn't ready. Then I went and worked for Dish Network where I was doing customer service and it's like you know 90 calls a day and that was fine but I was going through depression because I had a boyfriend and come to find out he was an alcoholic keeping it a secret and he died and I couldn't save him. And I was, I felt guilty from that, mostly because that morning I was yelling and screaming at him. They gave me one week off for mourning this guy dying in my apartment. I think that's what it was. I needed more time to deal with the issue that Not only did he pass away, but in my apartment that I had to keep living in. I didn't know how to mourn. Mourning like relatives dying is one thing, but mourning someone passing in your presence is a completely different thing, especially, you know, a significant other. I didn't care about going to work, but I was still working. But I wasn't paying rent for some reason. I wasn't, I didn't feel like it. And then I got evicted.
1: So do you stay with
2: friends for a little bit? I couch surfed. I stayed with my friend's mother and then I moved with him and his girlfriend for a while. That didn't work. and then I moved again with his mother. And it was just too much. That was the last straw. And so brought my suitcases. I had suitcase and matching set, you know, like I'm carrying around a matching suitcase set downtown, sleeping down there in order to go to work.
1: Do you remember the first night
2: you slept out there? Yeah, I spent the night on the Platte River. <laughs> So it was on Spear, I went down there because there was always bikers or jogging people passing by, so it was safer. I found a place I could put my suitcase and kind of keep one eye open. I end up going to this day shelter called St. Francis where I met other homeless, and that's a weird community. But if you find the right community, they'll take care of you. So people offered me to camp with them and that helped a lot. They made sure I had food. They shared their stuff. They took care of each other.
1: And like, how did you get a tent? How did you get all the this?
2: So camping wasn't really tent related. It was more carrying all your stuff and keeping a sleeping bag. So I got a backpack from REI that could carry a sleeping bag on top, one inside, keep my shoes. I always had a laptop, cause that was my escape. And I would just carry everything around. It was it was crazy. I was working at Dish Network, and they were, my supervisor was so kind. He kept calling at the homeless shelter, checking like, are you coming in? And I'm like, no. I knew that I was waiting for them to fire me because I didn't want to quit. I don't know what it was. I just didn't feel like taking care of responsibilities. Finally, after several weeks, he called and said, we have to fire you. <laughs> and he, was, he called to tell me, which was crazy at the time, but it was, you know, considerate. At the time I was down there, there was skinheads going around finding homeless and using like bats and all kinds of stuff and beating them up, men and women. So it wasn't safe. I had to stay close to the day shelter for food and shower and clothing and stuff like that. There's a lot of drugs and violence and guns and stuff down there. not having that boyfriend put me at risk. So I would always have to find a safe place.
1: As you get into this world, I'm just curious, like, what's going through your mind? Is it, is it, how am I gonna get out of here?
2: I wasn't even thinking about leaving. I had found a boyfriend that had his issues, but I love to help people. He would be gone for a week and I didn't know where he was. And then I had to find a place to camp because I didn't have his protection. There's plenty to help you get yourself back on track, but the people I was in the community, the little clique or group, they weren't focused on that. So I didn't know that that's what I should do. And so what were they
1: focused
2: on? Partying. Partying and finding the, the free food, I didn't really have any thought on where I should go until I was tired of this party. Like, we're not doing anything. We're not progressing. We're just finding another place to eat, finding some free clothes, finding free this and that and the other, but not moving forward.
1: Myra's story continues after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back. Before the break, Myra shared what happened that caused her to become homeless and how she learned to survive on the streets. Let's pick it up right there to learn how Myra found her way out. Is your dad still with us? Did did you maintain communication with him or where was he My dad,
2: you know, I didn't want him to view me when I was homeless, because he taught me to do better than that. I was going through too much trauma and I was kind of ashamed that I wasn't handling it right. I mean, I told my best friend and she she was helpful, but she was, I hate to say it, enabling. She would send me hundreds of dollars monthly and I had to tell her to stop because all I was doing is spilling it on the boyfriend when I was homeless. So I got help, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was me deciding whether I'm ready to get myself better. I know it sounds weird, but you know, a lot of times it's just making a decision. Is this where I want to be? Is this the kind of life I want to live? And at that moment, I did not like the life I was living. I decided it's time for me to start taking care of myself. St. Francis, they give you all the information about all the programs and stuff that they recommend. They have case management there but it's more for the people that aren't really caring about moving forward, just to keep them doing okay. It was like a stepping stone to move to the next step. I was diagnosed with PTSD, bipolar, and a little schizophrenia. So they moved me to across the street where they do just housing. You just go once a day and if you were picked, you go in and you see a case manager about housing normal lottery system. You didn't always get in, let alone get apartments. So I got referred and that moved me up a lot. Within four months, they offered me a place with no kitchen and I turned it down because from homelessness, you want a kitchen, you want to cook and feel like a normal person. And then they told me about this place. So that's how I got here. Okay, I'm gonna open my door. <laughs> So this is the place, huh? This is the place. Very cool. This is my living room. You can see here in my kitchen. As you can tell, I use it for art and kitchen stuff. <laughs> 2012 is when we moved in. I was part of the first group that moved in. I know two other people that was in the same orientation. They're still here. Living in this environment, it changes everybody.
1: Say pass if you like, but but um, you
2: said that you had a bump. I did have a bump. My bump was socialized using substances, and I became addicted after a year or so. I was seeing a doctor downstairs, and she put it in my chart. So now it's permanently in my chart. I was trying to be open so I can get help and move forward, and that hurt.
1: I'm curious about the way that Colorado Coalition for the Homeless supported
2: me. They kept supporting me and did not bring it up to management and try to get rid of me. They would rather me be housed than be kicked out on the streets because I had an issue or got involved with the wrong kind of substances or wrong groups. Finally, I got a good clinical case manager and she came from that kind of background, dealing with homeless and substance abuse. So she knew how to help me. Seeing the clinical case manager on a regular basis helped a lot. My dad, he was 87, 88. A couple years ago when I was still in recovery, I felt like I was better enough to go see him. I wanted to get closure. Went and seen him and I came back and I kept communication. I would have to do (laughs) tech help troubleshooting with his TV. So many resets (laughs) over the phone. Luckily that experience with Dish Network helped me with it. It was a way for us to keep in touch. I know he felt better about our communication. He just passed away due to COVID. So I've been living here for about nine years. I did a lot of volunteer tech help with people here for a few years, and I sat on their resident council for a while. And then I decided I could do more, so I joined the CAB, which is the Consumer Advisory Board for Coalition for the Homeless. There's a lot of mental issues in that community, and they're not aware that they have any mental issues. Some of it is PTSD, some of it is induced by the environment or induced from previous experiences, or induced by substances. That's what keeps them in that environment. In order for people to progress, they need to realize they need help. But I'm still trying to make myself healthy. I'm so glad for all the help that I found. I'm ready to move on.
1: As we've been working on this podcast, Tony, Jonna, and I have had a lot of discussions about what we're learning. We're gonna begin including some excerpts from those conversations here and there as a kind of debrief on the themes raised as the series continues.
0: I was just really thinking about what kind of trauma does that trigger to leave one morning and you come back to your home that you live with this person and they're dead. Personally, that really struck me.
1: One of the things that was there for me was the supervisor that Myra had at DISH. Giving people time off is one thing. Making sure they get their help they need is another. There's a lot of opportunity for coworkers and for employers to help to catch people in those moments and provide them the support that they need to not actually fall through the cracks and and become unhoused
0: being trauma-informed and having a mechanism in place to come from that lens to support employees is something that will come up again and again for us.
1: Agreed. And and one of the other themes that comes up a lot is the importance of trust. Rebuilding trust is super critical here. And one of the things that she mentioned is that they change case managers
0: all the time. Every time you tell your story to a new case manager, you have to relive that trauma. And typically a case management position, which often requires a master's degree, is one of the lowest paying jobs outside of a service worker that exists in our economy.
1: Well, and the other piece of this, you know, one could look at the story and they could make the argument that, yeah, it was her choice. She said a couple of times, she just didn't feel like paying rent anymore. You could make that argument and you would probably not be wrong. And if we understand the impacts of trauma, the impacts of what, what sounds to me like a really deep state of depression, there's a lot of mental health stuff that's here too. She says toward the end of the episode too, that it's like people don't realize they need help.
0: Many of us would have no idea what to do in that situation, but to give up on life or go into a depression or go hide somewhere. I mean, I think that's a very human response. I also think once you have identified that perhaps you need some support, there is so much stigma in our society around getting help. And I think that's a barrier that needs to be removed.
1: And I guess that's where I come back to, how would we do that? And for me, it's like the workplace is just such a perfect spot to create a safe place for people to be able to be vulnerable in a safe trauma-informed environment. If we could do that in lots of different places, I wonder how many stories like Myra would just not have happened.
0: Having systems in place where there's a steady support network. So it's not just when an employee's partner dies. The trust is already there. It's consistent. And the norm is mental health first. I have a quote that I revisited. It just really reminded me of Myra and the others who agreed to share their story. When we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it's better to speak. And that's Audre Lorde. That's awesome.
1: Well, I I think, you know, from here, we should go deeper. And let's go to the place where Myra's turnaround sort of happened, right? Which is the St. Francis Center. And so to tee up the next episode... We've got some raw audio from the day that you dropped me off there. I had never been there before. I don't think you had either. And we learned a lot. In the world at large, folks are kind of outcast. They're not welcome to just kind of be there with a backpack. So many people are looking for jobs. And there's sort of a a rejection of people with backpacks. It's kind of like, okay, you got a backpack, you're probably homeless. And, and that is a, a stigma that we try to help overcome. Just put your backpack here. Thank you to Nathan Church, our editor, sound designer, and barista. Production was provided by Heavy Pro Cinema. Elevated Denver is produced and critiqued by Tony Minardi, Strategy, planning, and social distancing are provided by Jana Flood. The all-local music you heard in this episode is thanks to our music supervisor, Zach Warkenton, and features Onokan and Sarah Slayton.
0: Head, let go, let go, let
1: Thank you also go. to China Caleb, who helped to develop the idea for this production. I'm your director and host, Nathan Havey. If you want to go deeper, you'll find background and extras at elevateddenver.co, like Colorado. And while you're there, jump on the email list so we can be in touch and hopefully get your help too. It's gonna to take all of us to build an elevated Denver. With
0: you, i